So how's everyone doing? Good. I last week was supposed to be my last week, and I was supposed to fly out the following morning, and then we had the what was it? Some sort of bomb? Like what was it? What was it called? Bomb cyclone? Yeah, cyclone bomb, whatever. Um, and but I really wanted to have this last week with you guys, so I changed my ticket and. Um, so here I am. Thank you. <laughs> and it's it's been good to have one extra week. Um, got to go skiing since the the hut trip was canceled. Eric, Pool, and uh, Jordan and uh, Kara, Kindle Ball, and I went skiing, and that was fun. So it's good to be in Colorado in the winter. But I don't think my wife is going to let me come back again in the winter. So little does she know that it can snow almost any time. <laughs> and if she's here, it will. <laughs> but no, I really appreciate uh, the time that I've had uh, in this class and um, just the, the opportunity to get to know a lot of you in a uh, just more personal way the uh, I mean the essence of this class is about relationship and how you know the argument that they're making is that poverty is not just material but it's relational and yeah my, my situation is not really poverty but um, I really appreciate the relationships that I've been able to develop and uh, strengthened during my time here and the being a Christian is all about relationship Jesus was very relational um, when uh, we read just the stories of Jesus uh, his ministry he was constantly uh, with people uh, of course, there were times he was trying to get away from people, uh, but his, his ministry re revolved around 12 men. Um, there, were, there were obviously other, other disciples besides the 12, but he, as a rabbi, I think it was customary for a rabbi to have disciples, and I don't think 12 was always necessarily the number, but you know, because of the 12 tribes, it just kind of made sense kind of a symbolic sort of thing. Um, and even even among the 12, there were uh, three or four that, you know, he was just especially close to. Um, Jesus invested his time, his energy in people. Those people later would invest their time and their energy in people. And the reason we are here today is a network of relationships that goes all the way back to Christ. And that's, that's an incredible thought to think that, you know, it's, I don't know how many degrees of separation it is. <laughs> it's a lot, but it goes all the way back to the original disciples and then to Jesus himself. And um, so... As we look at poverty, we need to be thinking in terms of relationship as well. And that's, that's kind of the, 
the main topic of this class, these four books that I have over here, basically all argue the same thing, that poverty in different ways, but that poverty, yes, it's a real problem, but the solution has to have at its core relationship. Um, if you get a chance, pick up any one of them. Uh, they're really good books to read. I would especially recommend When Helping Hurts or Toxic Charity is more of a, um, what do you call it, like, what are they called? Like stories, examples, uh, case studies uh, of poverty and poverty alleviation. Um, I've got a couple verses up here. Um, the first one, I, I, both of them we're very familiar with. The first one uh, from the beginning, this is the, this is John's version of the, the, the nativity story. One verse, not even one verse. Uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they get into a lot of the details, but John just summarizes it and says, Jesus came and he, he was just, I, I think the word um, is, the I've, I've often heard the same word that in Greek was used for tabernacle or something. Like, I mean, he was just, he came, it was a temporary thing, but he just came to hang out with us. He came and he was um, just one of us for a little while. Um, and we'll get back to that. Towards the end of his ministry, actually, quite near the end of his ministry, at least before his crucifixion, he was looking to the cross and he had just prayed about his disciples that they would be one. Then he prays about us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those, also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and I. Of course, the degrees of separation, like I said, are quite large, but... See, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. They may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. One of the things, so so why 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 does why does Jesus want us to be one? Read the last little. That the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. <clears throat> One of the uh, from the very first first class, the first week, one of the things we talked about was the marred self-identity. People don't realize, and especially a lot of people in, in poverty, do not realize their worth. They do not realize their value. They don't realize the potential that they have. They don't realize that they are loved by the God who created everything. Um... And how is it that the, the people are going to know that they are loved just as God 
love the sun, what is it we're going to have to do? Yeah, and be one. We're going to have to be, which is relationship. And sadly, in the church, and I, as much as any of you here, come from a very, what's the word, independent, you know, do it ourselves, you know, a, a church background that's very much focused on ha- in the past. And there's there's a lot that I love about Churches of Christ, don't get me wrong. But we've all often been very uh, you know, pattern focused, very, um, uh, you know, kind of blueprint, like this is the way you do the right thing. Sometimes we've been less relationally focused, and sometimes we've been a little less than cooperative with others. We, we want to do things on our own. You know, we are, we are an autonomous congregation. You know, we have our own leaders. We do our own thing. I love the fact that Eastside is a part of Mercy's Gate. Because that's something where we have, I don't know how many churches within Colorado Springs who are working together. We are showing the world, the world around us, Colorado Springs, that we in the church, we are united and we are here for you. And that's one thing that I love about Mercy's Gate. I don't know a whole lot about it. The second thing I like about it, I think I mentioned this another week, is they don't just give out stuff. You, if, if you are going to receive something, you go through some sort of process of, you know, counseling. They want to know, they want to get to know you. What is your situation? It's much more relationally focused than many churches that I know who have a food pantry or whatever. And they, um, you know, somebody knocks on the door and you just hand them stuff so they go away. I mean, I've, I've, I've been a part of that, like. I've, um, it's churches all over the place do that. And, and people know, you know, okay, I can get away with going to this church once a month. This church I can go to <laughs> only every three months. Um, I worked with people in the inner city and they, they knew their churches, man. Um, so, but their relationship was lacking. Um, so I want to just quickly review the last couple of weeks, we talked about relief, rehabilitation, and development with the idea that relief is what you do when there's an emergency. You want to move away from relief and uh, away from rehabilitation towards development. Um, most, most of the times that we deal with poverty, there is no crisis. There is no, no need for relief. There's no need for rehabilitation. What we need to do is be walking side-by-side relationship again, walking side-by-side with people in a development capacity, trying to help empower them, to help them, to partner with them, to learn from them, and together try to uh, improve their lives, improve our relationships with them, that sort of thing. Um, Last week, we talked about change cycle so uh, the idea is not everybody is 
able, or not able, but not everybody is willing to change. Some people are just, they may not say they are, but they're really just content where they are. And those are not the people that we want to focus on usually. We want to look for the people who are um, wanting to not only see change in their lives, but hopefully change the lives of others. And that's the people that we should be focusing on. Um, there's a few, a few th triggers uh, that will cause people to want to change a recent crisis, will cause them, we talked about Hurricane Katrina or something like that, people move on, do something different. Um, the burden of the status quo, being tired of the same thing, just finally being sick and tired of being sick and tired and just having all of a sudden the the, the incentive to change. Like I've, I've just spent so much on cigarettes, I've just got to stop. I'm just, you know, I'm going to quit smoking right now and cold turkey and it happens sometimes. Um, and sometimes it's just being introduced to something new and realizing, oh, this is something better than what I know now. Um, today, I think this is the video. Yeah, we'll go ahead and start the video and talk about some of the concepts from this week afterwards. Does the sound work? Yep. For one thing, there's incredible resilience for, for people living, particularly in the situations that I worked in, that had this incredible odds against them. To get up every day, to go to work, and to try to have some sense of normalcy for their kids is a sense of resiliency that I think a lot of us with comfortable lifestyles don't really understand. There's a great sense of culture. And, and even in spirituality, there's, they have an understanding and a concept of who God is that um, may be different than outsiders coming in. But it, it's an asset because it's a fuller picture of who God is. Um, just a lot of people have never seen themselves as being um, positive agents, a positive force in the world that, that has been given God-given gifts um, that God wants to use. So a lot of times people are defined by their money. So if they don't have any money, they don't think they have anything of value to add. And we have to recognize when we walk into communities, whether here in the U.S. or, or around the world, you know, as outsiders, who are we? It's just who we are. And I don't say that to mean we're people just looking at us to get our money. It's just we represent, and we are, the wealthy and the powerful. We're the Donald Trumps. When we walk in, we just bear a huge presence. And you don't ignore that presence. When I walk into a community and make a suggestion as a powerful outsider, um, that often is heard as a command. When I say, ask a question, that question can be interpreted as an order. This is especially, especially, especially the vast majority of cultures in the majority world are indirect cultures. Sir lives not mine. Um, they're the heroes, not me. Um, and I just would love to get beyond that. It's just, it takes a long time of humble, aware walking to get there. As low-income people begin to see who they are in God's eyes and their sense of self begins to go up, 
and as people who maybe have a little bit more materially begin to realize the issues that they have and they begin to come down a little bit we meet on a playing field where we realize you know what we're all in the same boat and we all need God and the idea of us needing each other and being mutually interdependent upon each other because that's the way God made it you're helping them to realize that even in the context where they are where resources are limited God is alive and God is there where you find the greatest amount of hope within a low hope culture the greatest amount of hope is in their faith uh, their faith gives them a sense of hope it may not be for here and now but there's hope and there's uh, there's a sense of purpose and direction what should those churches and ministries be doing that are in the poor communities and then what should you be doing in your role as a partner with them and again the goal is to foster reconciliation so how can we use asset-based participatory development approaches in poor communities then how do we partner well with our ministry partners who are pursuing those approaches your church is often partnering with ministries and organizations that are inside of poor communities in North America. And you're probably also partnering with churches and ministries that are working inside of poor communities in the majority world. And so you're ministering to the poor kind of indirectly through your partnerships. And so what we want to do today is talk a little bit about what does that look like? Well, generally, it's not a frontline role. It's a role of being in support of them because they are the primary manifestation of Jesus Christ in that community. They're the ones that live there day in and day out. They're the ones that have the relationships. They're the ones that can bring about asset-based participatory development. As an outsider, you really can't be in the front lines of that. You're supporting those who are in the front lines of that. It's a lesser role to some degree in terms of visibility. But it's a profoundly important role. They need your church, your suburban church, to pray, provide money for staff, salary, and expenses for people to develop relationships. Again, what we need are financial supporters who will pay for staff from those communities to hang out. <laughs> we need people to hang out and foster relationships. And we need people who will pay for people to hang out and foster relationships. New Song Community Church and Ministries in Sandtown, a region of Baltimore, one of the most successful Christian community development initiatives in the country. When you drive through one of the poorest neighborhoods in, in, in Baltimore, it looks like a ghetto in all the trappings of a ghetto, and you get to several blocks of New Song Community Church and Ministry, in which hundreds of homes have been rehabbed. There's an Eden Jobs program. There's a health center. You get a sense of the presence of the kingdom of God in several blocks in a ghetto in Baltimore. I had the privilege of meeting with these folks, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I sat down with them and I said, how did you do it? 
how did you rehab all of these homes? Can you show me your spreadsheets? Can you show me your blueprints? And they said, well, we can show you that stuff, but you kept asking us how we did this. I said, right, I want the plans. I want the blueprints. And they said, well, you're saying you want the plans and the blueprints, but you're also saying you wanted to learn how we did it. Those are not the same things. I'm not getting it yet. I said, how did you do this? They said, we hung out with kids for several years. We played stickball in the streets. We got involved in our community. We took kids to see the Baltimore Orioles play. We hung out with people. We pursued their dreams. We used their resources. We used their gifts. And so the process we used was hanging out. They had some very patient donors who paid for them to hang out. If you can't travel to different parts of the world, then you might need, not you might, you should have partnerships. With partnerships, I mean people who have expertise, passion, desire, willingness, and to engage with a certain context. So you really need also to evaluate the partnerships that you engage with, so that through partnerships, we can be able to accomplish a certain task, simply because the partners are there to journey with those guys over a longer period of time. We can't do everything. In fact, we're not supposed to. But we can support the work of God through local churches and ministries around the world. Alvin Mambola's work in and around the Kibera slum of Nairobi, Kenya, is focused on holistic development. Working with local churches, Alvin helps build up and train savings groups, a circle of people formulated from the community to pool their money and resources to support change in their own lives. When development extends beyond dollars and cents, change can extend beyond people's hands and into their hearts. So solving people's problems is a relationship problem. For me, that's where it starts and ends. Because mm -hmm. enough times for me, for example, I can't walk into communities. I've not carded any money. But the fact that I would sit there and converse with the guys at equal levels, many issues emerge. And we strengthen each other there. I mean, you can see the job. It's only that because of the families, we never got to see most of them. But enough times when I go to those meetings, I think I come there, my spirit lifted. Because the interaction within those rooms are usually very lively. And people are always so happy as they transact their businesses. That is very different from the first year when those guys were starting. But now people come to meetings, sometimes even they, maybe they don't have money to contribute to the services, but the fact that you're going to meet friends, chat, talk, pray, and go home becomes very important. can unleash an empowering process in which local people are learning to discover and utilize their own assets to affect positive change in their lives. Now what is the role of your church in this? You're not in the front lines in the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. What is the role of your church in your partnership with your brothers and sisters around the world? Again, it's a supportive role. Your approach is very similar to the partnership for the North American poor communities. Your role is to support 
the churches and ministries that God has already placed there, enabling them through your prayers, encouragement, and financial support to engage in a highly relational, asset-based participatory process. Here are some very uh, quick principles for healthy partnerships. Number one, focus on the relationship, not just on accomplishing something. If the whole thing is just about what you're going to produce, it's going to be problematic. Because it's not going to get produced in the, in the time frame you want. Focus on the relationship, not just on the thing you're trying to do together. Interdependence. <laughs> Recognize that you need them. It's not just that they need you. It's not just that they need your resources. You need them. They have gifts and abilities to minister in those settings that you and I don't have. They bring something to the table. It might not be material resources, but they are profoundly important resources nonetheless. Shared control. Both ministries, both churches, both organizations need to have shared control. One party shouldn't control everything. Skin in the game. They've got to contribute something to the project or ministry that you're pursuing together. It could be money. It could be human resources. It's got to cost them something to do the thing. If it doesn't cost them anything, then you don't actually know if they want the thing to happen or not. Your ministry partners have to contribute something to what's going to take place. some groups doing decent work. Start supporting them. Be willing to ask them to do what they need versus what you want to do. There's research that suggests that what human beings' brains remember from an event is the high of the event and the low of the event and the last thing that happened. And so we want to leave you the most important thing. We really believe that the first step that the North American church needs to take in effective ministry to the poor at home and abroad is repentance. Repentance of pride. Repentance of a material understanding of the world and an embracing of the good news of Colossians 1 Jesus that I'm broken and that you're broken but Colossians 1 Jesus is bringing healing as far as the curse is found and he can change the lives of poor people <clears throat> sorry he can change the lives of poor people including me Thanks for being here today.
dots. <laughs> Pretty light, considering where I'm going to be in a couple of days. Yeah. <coughs> so, let's see. You're going to Cozumel. Is anyone else going to Cozumel? Tim? Anyone else? So, what would happen if you just went to Cozumel and just hung out? Probably have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> but it wouldn't be life changing for you or them. But I think that if we don't take it to the extreme, the hanging out is more along the lines of, in the way that we do it, since we're only there for a week, it's building relationships. Yeah, and that's what I mean by yeah. hanging out. Is. But it, it's, and we, and we do that, uh, I think we could do it better. But we do that, we build some relationships while we're there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I still remember the first time I went to Cozumel on the van on the way from the airport to where we were going to be staying for the week and we're going by these houses very run down um, and I'm just thinking what have I got myself into and uh, by the end of the week I didn't want to leave because those were my friends mm-hmm. that's what I got myself into mm-hmm. and stuff now I can't not go back yeah <laughs> We went there once, and the biggest memory I have is of Matt Elliott sitting on the front porch. It had to be three or four hours with a girl that's a junior there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, why isn't he busy? No. Yeah. He's about, He's, about his business. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's, that that's not to say that, you know, you can't have some sort of agenda, or I know Jack goes to Mexico and you build houses, right? Alan does. I, I just provide the water. <laughs> the water boy. Sounds like you hang out. And it, it's not it's not so much about what you do, but what your focus is. What is your what are you trying to really accomplish? We always go to Cozumel with an agenda, the things that we want to we feel pretty good if we can get a lot of those done, but where we really thrive is in the things that weren't on the agenda mm-hmm. that not only changes life there, but it also changes us. One time I made a comment, I don't even remember when, but my teammate Robert quotes me all the time about this. At one point in Angle, I said, I feel like I've been productive if I accomplish one thing every day. Like, I wake up in the morning and I think of one thing that, you know, like, one activity, one, you know, get one signature on a piece of paper. If I can get one thing a day done, I'm doing well. And that's for two reasons. One, because nothing happens like it should. It's just, uh, but, but the other thing is people just get in the way. Like, I get a knock on the door, and, you know, the guy won't go away for four hours. Like, it's just, you know, and and I had to change my, my thinking. You know, Americans, we're very much about being efficient. You know, Henry Ford uh, helped us learn how to do things very, uh, you know, industrial revolution, all this kind of stuff. 
most developing countries never went through an industrial revolution. Never that that mentality of task orientedness has never uh, really become a thing. They're very relational. And then we go into a new community and we're very task focused and not so relational. And I think we can learn from from John 1.14. The word became flesh and hung out for a while. <coughs> you know? Um, that, that's not to say that Jesus didn't have an agenda, but his agenda was very, very relational. Um, so, I don't remember if you talked about this. Yeah. It was It was on the... So the role of the suburban, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of what our building looks like. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, minus the stained glass windows. Yeah. Yeah. The paint, the grass. Uh, we get some clouds like that sometimes. The blue sky. So the... You know, the question is, you know, what do we do as a rich American suburban church? Okay, we may not be uh, New Life or, um, you know, one of the biggest churches in town. But still, compared to most of the churches that we could partner with in the developing world, we're quite rich, quite, we have so many resources, um, and our tendency is to think, oh, let's give them money, let's give them stuff, let's, you know, um, uh, go build a house, let's go, you know, and, and we think in material terms because we think of poverty in material terms. We think, we want, we think that it's our responsibility to go fix them because they're broken. Mm-hmm. All the time realizing, not realizing that we're broken too. I think one of the really good programs that was out there for years um, and is not now and it was very relational was the Joy Bus program Mm -hmm. and I was involved in that for 14 years and I'm telling you there was some heartbreaking moments we went into the poor communities not the well to do but the the ones where it was really needed Mm -hmm. And um, matter of fact, one of the Joy Bus kids that was on my bus, she's one of my friends on Facebook. And they never went to church until the Joy Bus. And they were needy. They needed help. Um, but we were there for them, mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. And um, it was kind of sad yeah it is sad i mean and unfortunately it's not the sort of thing we could revive you know you can't just go in and pick up kids anymore (laughs) it just the world we live in today and it's sad (laughs) but i i know it i know exactly what you're uh saying it's it's a shame um let's see so the principles for healthy partnerships. Um, 
relationship focus. That's, I mean, what we've been talking about. Interdependence, you know, realizing that we need each other, that we're not the ones necessarily setting the agenda and, um, like, we have to depend on one another. Um, shared control, now that's a hard one because usually we're the ones that have the most to lose, uh, at least in our material way of seeing things, because usually we are the ones that have the access to the funds, access to, you know, the, the vehicles, to the, and it's... And even the time invested. Yeah. We're investing time and money, mm-hmm. so we think we have to see results. Right. But we think that our time is much more valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they seem to have so much of it. I mean, <laughs> I, that's what it seems like. Um, and it's it's very hard when you, um, I mean, you also have donors who are trying to keep you accountable. It's a very, it's a very difficult thing to share control, share finances, share and sometimes it means you're going to get hurt. But when you have the relationship focus as your primary, like we, um, I don't know, it's just something to consider. And skin in the game, that's like I talk about, Umoya will not see a patient if that patient doesn't do something, even if it's giving a couple of, you know, eggs or um, people need to have some sort of investment in whatever is happening because we don't even know. Remember the the dollar bill thing. The, they call it the in the book. This was before uh, two thousand sixteen. So, but they call it the Donald Trump effect in the book. And when we go into the developing world, people, you know, see the the dollar on our forehead and will answer questions the way they think we want them answered. They will hear a question as a command. Um, I, I struggle with that. Umoyo is always like, hey, son. Because <laughs> I'm a very curious person. Like, I ask a lot of questions. And... I've had to learn that asking questions is not always, in my skin, an appropriate way to, because a lot of times I'll ask a question and they might think that I'm questioning their ability or their thinking or uh, or telling them what to do. Um, did I see a hand? No. Um, but so, but... Having skin in the game is a way to really help. If people are willing to put forward some of their own resources into something, then that tells you, okay, this is something that they really want and need. Um, Does anyone know who this is? Hippocrates. 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 Did anyone ever watch Bill and Ted? The, I don't know if Hippocrates is one of them, but all the... I think so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beethoven. And, yeah, so Hippocrates is known for the Hippocratic Oath. 
uh, he's known for other things too, but uh, I don't, I'm not a medical person, so I don't know how much the Hippocratic Oath is actually really a thing, or I, I don't know. Um, and actually, um, there's the expression, above all, do no harm, which is not actually from the Hippocratic Oath. The kind of the concept is there, but it was someone else that said that, uh, apparently. But um, Hippocrates, you know, had this Hippocratic Oath that I think in some form it's been, you know, modernized or something. That I, I understand that medical doctors even today still do something, but I could be wrong. They do. Um, Robert Lupton, in this book, Toxic Charity. Um, this is the one that has a lot of just case studies. If you want to kind of know more about the things that we've been talking about, he, he gives a lot of examples, a lot of just concrete, like this is um, concrete examples and principles that, uh, I mean, he was one of the guys they interviewed uh, multiple times throughout the series the videos um, that's toxic charity how churches and charities hurt those they help and how to reverse it um, at the end of the book he talks about you know Hippocrates and this idea of above all do no harm um, and so he he kind of took that concept and kind of came up with his own Hippocratic Oath. It's, it's called the Oath for Compassionate Service. And I wanted to just kind of leave you with something that, you know, you can stick in your Bible and think about every once in a while or whatever. You can also buy the book um, and read it. It's Or watch the videos again. They're all on YouTube. Just look up When Helping Hurts or Helping Without Hurting. It'll show up on YouTube. But, um, I mean, that's, we've got five minutes left. I, I just wanted to give everyone a chance to, like, if there's any questions or thoughts or anything. Yeah, Bob. Nathan, I want to thank you for, for what you shared. I, uh, we lived in Mexico for five years, and I made a lot of mistakes. And had I known this, the principles you've taught these last few weeks, I would have avoided most of those mistakes. This has been really helpful to me. And the thing that he said at the end there that really hit me is, you know, I, I need to, to do some self-inspection because I was brought up in this culture, and, and I do. I... I judge my value as a human being based basically on what I can produce. Mm -hmm. Time is money. Yeah. And and that's an American thing. That's not a that's not a human thing. Because yeah. like you said, you go into these other cultures and if if you violate the relationship by valuing time, you know, looking at your watch, cutting the conversation short never having time for people that it doesn't matter how much money you have you're never you're never going to make an impact on that on anybody mm -hmm. because they're all going to know where your values are 
Yeah. I, I just, I, I think what he said there at the end, that if we're going to get involved in trying to help these people, the first thing we need, I need to do is repent mm-hmm. of my own arrogance and, and just really be willing to meet them where they are and value them. Yeah. And it, for me, it's a daily thing. I mean, and some days I do better than others because I am so American. I mean, I, um, I grew up here still most of my life. I've lived in America and the values that you learn when you're young are the ones that stick with you. And I tend to, to value myself based on what I accomplish, what I, what I'm able to do, what I'm able to, you know, it's all very material or like you said, time oriented or accomplishment oriented and shifting to a more relational focus has uh it's it's a constant struggle any other thoughts or comments i'm just thinking and people in the room who retired probably have had this happen uh when i retired i moved up here and didn't know anybody nothing no professional no nothing and all that stuff that had been so important to me in my career just like nobody cared. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's kind of like I, I think of Colin Powell. I heard him once say that when he retired from being a general in the army, the only important decision he made each day was was whether to supersize at McDonald's or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of you know it it is it's it's sort of a a strange feeling to suddenly discover that all the stuff you put emphasis on in your life doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But relationships last. The relation, that's, I mean, that's the thing. That's the, mm-hmm. the relationships are what do count. Yeah. Not whatever. Eddie was tearing into me last night about, we were talking about just, you know, my, my tendency to be, you know, a bit of a workaholic and, you know, to stay busy, you know, do, 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 do. And he's like, you've got two beautiful little girls that, like, I don't want to see you, um, you know, ruin, you know, like, you, you've got one chance. And um, so I'm glad I've got people like Eddie to help keep me <laughs> accountable to, to focus on the things that are important. Of course, my ministry is important. But it's very easy because it's ministry, it's, you know, God's work or whatever to to feel like somehow like that has to come first when really I need to find balance. Make the cats in the cradle your parental theme song. Yeah, definitely. If, if anybody hasn't heard that, mm-hmm. and if you're standing before God, is he going to ask, oh, what did you do in work? Harry Chapin or Ugly Kid Joe? I I can't decide between the two. How much much work you did? Yeah. Yeah. Those kids will probably bring more people to Christ than you can imagine. That's very true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a very, very good point. When, like, the Sunday that I preached, I talked about how, you know, if if the average Christian could make, you know, four or five disciples in their lifetime, disciples who make disciples, 
then we would see the same type of growth that the early early church saw. And it starts at home. Yep. And don't let them go to school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I really, really appreciate all of you. I'm willing, uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'll stay here all night if you want to talk some more. But um, it's, it's time to wrap things up. And, uh, but I really love and appreciate all of you. Thank you so much for um, coming to my class and um, giving me some, uh, some love. And it's been great to get to know some of you a bit better. And I look forward to getting to know others of you the next time around. And, um, yeah, thanks. I love you guys. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m., as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.